and God saw that it was good. <laughs> okay, if we can put the smartphones in a smartphone place so that I won't be, um, I don't know, suffering from anxiety or something like that. Me too. I will make sure this is off. Okay, so, so we're, we're speaking about the greatness of God. And there are three levels of greatness. So we're going to read them in the text, and then I will explain them. Okay. The greatness of God. Level number one, how he fills all the worlds. Okay, so this first level of God's greatness that one should misbein and contemplate, reflect on, is how God fills all the worlds. The second is how he encompasses all the worlds. And the third, as in in the presence of whom everything is considered as nothing. It's right there in the text. You can read it. So the first level is how God fills the, all the worlds. The second is how God encompasses all the worlds. And the third is how in the presence of God, everything is considered as nothing. It's in Basilagani. Yeah. And about 80 to 90% of every Hasidic discourse, you'll find this phrasing. Yeah. yeah. Intense. Okay. So, so, what we're going to do is I'm going gonna to throw out a question to you. If we have three concepts, how God fills all the worlds, surrounds all the worlds, and in the presence of whom everything is considered as nothing... And I want to take these three and divide them into two categories. Which two should get grouped together and which one should be its own separate category? Use your thinking part of your body. Yes? The first two should be together and the third is separate? Why do you say that? Because the third one is like us in relation to you. And the first two are like him being everything. I mean, I mean all, all of them have relation. Right, all of them. Yeah, I mean, greatness by definition involves speaking about things in relation to something else, right? Either comparing or contrasting, but a, a kind of relationship. So you are right, but that's not the correct reason. Anyone want to tell me why the first two should be grouped together and the third should be treated as a separate category? Yeah? So maybe the first two are how Hashem interacts with the world, like he fills it and he encompasses it. Mm-hmm. But the third one is like how the rest of the world is Um, you're closer. The first two speak about, about how Hashem relates to the world. And the third is speaking about something else. Let's just go with that for right now. Okay. Okay. Which means that we should understand what we mean when we say a world. Right? Okay. So. Well, it doesn't say that, does it? I mean, the world, world doesn't exist, but it doesn't say there's no world. It just says in the presence of Him, everything is considered as nothing. I mean, does everything include the worlds? Yes. I don't know. So let's take this one step at a time. We're going to ignore the third one for now. We're going to only talk about the first two. What's a world? This is a test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A world is a world is someone. Who is somewhere. So like you 
are in are in this world. You exist in this world. You interact with people, places, things, objects, right? You also have an inner world, right, of things that are only real to you, but none of us can experience. Like your dreams, your desires. Do we have direct experience of them? No, but you do. Okay. So now. The way we're going to think about this is world is a synonym for the reality that God created. And the reason why it's in the plural is because did God only create one reality or do he create many realities? Do those realities interact with each other in different ways? Yes, they do. Is that an interesting discussion to talk about? Yes, it is. Are we going to talk about it now? No, we're not. But the point is, God created many levels and many kinds of realities. Okay? And God ha- has two basic ways of relating to reality. All realities. One is that he fills the reality, and the other is that he encompasses. Okay? So because this line is in the famous Maimur Basi Lagani, the famous discourse Basi Lagani, which in the Chabad Israeli educational system, you start learning from what age? Five. Three. Wow. Yes. From age three. They teach three-year-olds, yes. Which they just teach three-year-olds to recite it by heart. And they learn about two lines or three lines. Um, maybe one line. My, my, my youngest child who, who learned it this year is five, my five-year-old daughter. And she was quite proud of herself as she was uh, reciting the first four lines of Basi Lagani in her five-year-old voice. Wow. Uh, which was very cute. That is cute. Yes. In our, in our, in our family, you fought for bang, and every child wanted to recite as much of Basi Lagani as they knew by heart. Um, so that was lots of fun. That's so cute. Yeah. Um, anyway, but eventually at some point, the children get old enough that the teacher has to explain a little bit of what this stuff means. And so my 11-year-old, his teacher actually like, tried to explain some of it. And, and so because of Basilagani, it has this same thing about, about how Hashem fills the worlds and surrounds the worlds. So he gave the following analogy. So I will give you the analogy that my son's teacher told them. And you tell me what you think of the analogy. Okay? Is that imagine you have a bunch of different cups. You have big cups. You have small cups. And the cups are all filled with water. Right? So there's different amounts of water in each cup. But if the cups are in a swimming pool, the same water surrounds all the cups. So the amount of water in the cups varies from cup to cup, but the cup, but the water around the cups is all the same. So in one sense, God is present in each level of reality in a different way, because every aspect of reality is different. But then God surrounds them all the same way. Do you like the analogy? Anyone not like the analogy? No. You, you don't like the analogy. Why don't you like the analogy? I hate cups. You hate cups. Well, <laughs> that you just have to get over. Okay, that's your own personal idiosyncrasies. There's no filling in the like. It's all surrounded. It's all surrounded. There's no filling. I like it for an eleven-year-old. You like it for an eleven-year-old. Yeah. So. Well, I heard it last year in seminary. What? You heard what? I was told last year in seminary was an eighteen-year-old. That specific what? analogy. Water around the cups. Yep. Okay. Well, now I feel bad for you. So I was not happy. I was not happy. I was not happy. And the reason why I was not happy is because I feel an analogy has to do something that's quite important, which is the analogy has to make the thing that it's supposed to be analogizing make more sense to you. So now, what does this mean about God? 
that God is like a giant swimming pool? And then everything, like, like, what is that? Like, like, how does this now help me have a greater understanding of God's relationship with reality? Like, it's very good. Like, you went from abstract words to something concrete that I can understand. But how does that help me now have a better sense of God? Like, like, what does that mean? Like, so, God is like this, this energy vapor that's around every single person. Like, like what, am I, what, what exactly am I now supposed to understand better because of this analogy? One of the things that people often do with analogies, which is, is they take some words which have no, they're very esoteric, they're very um, abstract, they don't mean a lot, and you make an analogy and it makes the words very concrete, but then you ask yourself, does that analogy actually explain the idea that was meant to be explained? Like, what is my 11-year-old now supposed to understand better about God because of this than before? And as I spoke with him and asked him, I realized that all he could do is repeat what the teacher said, and he really didn't understand what this has to do with Hashem and, like, you know, doing Torah mitzvahs. And then I was sad. Yes? But you could explain from the analogy that, like, the, there's this aspect of Hashem that surrounds it. That's, what it means, surrounds? Like, I asked, I, I asked my son, like, what do you mean? Like, 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 when you go up into, like, there's, I said, like, there's, there's, there's the earth, and then there's the heavens, and then it's like the sun goes around the earth, and then there's the stars, and then around that is Hashem, like a giant big donut. What about that? And he thought like that. He thought like, well, I mean, guess that's what it would mean, but that doesn't sound right. What about the aspect of like the different sizes cups, like the same is poured into all of them, but depending on the shape of it, it's held differently. So like, it's the same Hashem going to every world, but depending on the shape of the world, it will be specific. Okay, that's very nice, but like I I did I asked my son, he didn't seem to get that, so I was sad. Well, he's brilliant. <laughs> and I'm his father, so I'm biased. <laughs> it basically just shows that Sovev is more on an equal level and Mamale is more dependent. So Sovev is Aramaic for surrounds and Mamale is Aramaic for fills because this is actually a pe- quote from the Zohar. The Zohar says, Ihu Mamale Kolaman, he fills all worlds. Ihu Sovev Kolaman, he surrounds all worlds. And so in Hasidic jargon, they just get shortened to Sovev and Mamale. Um, but they're talking about ways that God relates, which is what's being referred to here. So, okay, now we're on to something. There's a way in which Hashem relates to everything equally, and there's a way in which Hashem relates to everything differently. If that's what you got from the analogy, then good, that's great. Okay? So, let's just stop there for a second. Does Hashem have the same relationship with you as He does with me? You're not paying attention. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. In some sense, his relationship with me is different than his relationship with you, and in some ways, his relationship with me is the same as his relationship with you. So the way he relates to me that's different than the way he relates to you, that's called him filling the world, like filling the cup. Each cup is filled to a different amount because each cup has a different size. But the way he relates to me that's the same as the way he relates to you, that's called surrounding or encompassing. Like supposedly the same swimming pool can surround all the different size cups. This equal. Yes? Are we then different worlds? Mm. Well, well, this gets into an interesting issue, which is that worlds being an abstract notion can be scaled up and scaled down. So we can speak of each person being their own world. We can speak of the world that's the totality of all the different people's worlds um, together with each other. This is like, think about it like this. Is a person 
a single entity or is a city a single entity? And the answer is both, but on different levels of analysis. So it's the same thing. Um, you'll often hear about the four worlds, which tells you that how many are there. Four. But there's a rule in Judaism, which is that if you get a number in Judaism, is it ever that number? No. Even that. Yep. There's, yeah, even the number 613, it's not really 613. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was the one thing. No. For instance, there's some Rishonim that hold that that's just an asmach, that's, that's, just an, uh, uh, that's not even correct, and that um, not, all, not all of those people a hold of it. There's a concept called the mitzvah kolelelis, which is that their mitzvahs not including the 613, then there's the seven mitzvahs derabana. Like, yeah, it's just not true. It's never that simple. So how many worlds are there? The answer is there are an infinite number of worlds. However, when you are categorizing them, the schema that's best used to categorize them is a schema of using four. Why that is, I'm not going to get into. So we can speak about I have my world and you have your world. And my world, when I analyze it, can actually be broken down into four levels. Your world can be broken into four levels. We could take all of our things. We, like whatever you can do, you can use the scheme of four to explain it. But worlds are simply some, some degree of self-contained aspect of reality. So in that sense, each person has their own world. But you can say you know, the whole physical universe is in some sense its own world. Yeah, <coughs> or their worlds within worlds, if you will. Is that concept of like, your own world, is that similar to like the It would follow from that, but I don't want to get into that because like, to, to, to think about that coherently, I think requires a lot of pri- building blocks. But yes, it does follow that. Um, that, that, that. That does follow in a certain sense, yeah. If the analogy is the same thing, is it good? Do you have a better analogy? Yes, but I first want to let's see what, what, what <laughs> I want to start at the beginning. I mean, what's wrong with starting at an 11-year-old level and working up? Okay, oh so, so the first thing is, the first thing is that Hashem relates to every, every level of reality or every aspect of reality or every self, everything, everything individually, and that's called filling the world, but he also relates to them all in the same way, and that's called surrounding. Okay, I want to stop there and really, because that analogy for that works, but let, let's flesh that out for a second. If you're relating to a bunch of things in the same way. What are you not doing that you are doing relate to a bunch of things in different ways? If you're relating to a bunch of different things the same, what are you not doing that you are doing when you relate to a bunch of things differently? Taking into account the other thing. So if we take one step in this analogy, one step from equal to different, and we say, wait a minute, if Hashem relates to me in the same way he relates to you, that means, is he really taking me into account in his relationship with me? Is he really taking you? Because if he was taking me into account, I'm not you, so there would be some differences. So this level we say Hashem, quote, encompasses or surrounds, meaning that the relationship that he has with everything is equal, it means that he's not really taking you into account. Whereas the relationship that's called filling the world where it is different, it means he is taking you into account. So now, this is a test to see whether we uh, really understand what we're talking about. In your eyes, 
Sorry, not in your eyes. In God's eyes. Are you superior to a rock? And in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. Because if Hashem is relating to you in a way that he's taking you into account, and in your experience, you are superior to a rock, right? I do think we all have that sense, yes? Right? Like, if we had a choice to like cease to be human beings and become rocks, um, and, a, and that was a real option, um, most of us wouldn't take it. You know how we know that? That's what dying is. <laughs> most of us are not keen on that, right? <laughs> Maybe we're willing to accept it for, for a higher good, but like, as, a, as like a proposition in of itself, that generally, yeah, and usually when we see people that, that do want to die just for its own sake, we tend to, rightly or wrongly, I would think rightly, assume that something is wrong with them. Okay. So that means we think that being a person is somehow better, it's a more, we can use this word, nobler kind of an existence than being a rock or a pile of dirt. Okay. Now, if God relates to us and he takes us into account, then he would have to take into account the superiority of a human being over rock in his relationship with us, which means where does God put more value and weight on the existence of a person or the existence of a rock? The existence of a person. But on the other hand, if we say that God surrounds all the worlds and he's not taking the, in the individual differences into account in his relationship, in that sense, does God place more value on a person than a rock? No. And which one of those things is correct? Both. Both. In other words, there is a, a, for lack of words, a level of his relationship where he's taking us into account and interacting or being present in kind. And then there's a way where he is not accommodating us and not changing us, that his relationship with us is entirely based on who he is and what he is about. And our differences and our unique characteristics are irrelevant. Even distinctions between the person and the rock. On which level? On the second level. Sort of. There are distinctions, but the distinctions don't matter. Okay. So let me give you um, an example. Okay. And this, by the way, is the example that's used in Chassidus to make this distinction clear. And this is what happened with my eleven-year-old. We're sitting in the doctor's office waiting room because you know when you're in the waiting room, what better things do you have to do than to discuss the greatness of God? Like, what do you do when you're in the waiting room? Okay. okay. Well, we were discussing the greatness of God. So I asked him the following question. I asked him the following question. Um, which part of your body do you use to see? And being a brilliant 11-year-old, he was able to answer the question, which is? Brain. Do I have to tell you the story about the brain? Did I tell you the story about my 11-year-old and the brain? No. Okay. This story is an important story. background story. Okay. <laughs> so, if you're squeamish, you might want to leave. So my 11-year-old, we were sitting and talking. At this point, he was 10. And he said something along the lines of, the brain thinks. And I was very upset with this. I did not find this an acceptable you know, uh, way of understanding reality. So I asked him, and I said, well, what's the brain? If it's doing all this thinking. And he says, well, you know, it's the thing over here. And I say, okay, that's where it is, but what is it? He's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's over at the thing in here. But what, what, what's in there? And then for the first time in his life, he realized that he doesn't know what the brain is. It's just the thing inside your skull. So I said, the brain is a piece of meat. And he said, no. So yeah, no, it's a piece of meat. 
says that, but, but, but a piece of meat can't think. And I said, that's my point, a piece of meat can't think. So obviously the brain doesn't think. And he says, but the brain can't be a piece of meat. I said, sure it is. So I want to show you a picture of a brain. So I showed him a picture of a brain, a human brain and a cow brain, because they look very similar. I said, this one is food. People eat this one. Right? People eat cow brains. This one people don't eat because, you know, most of us have a standard of decency. But when you look at the picture, like this is meat and this is meat, they're not like that different. I mean, slightly different shape, but it's more or less the same. And he looks and says, like that can't, so then he says, well, why do people say that you think with your brain? And he said, well, people say you write with your pen, but the pen itself can't write. I mean, pens don't just get up and write. I mean, you have to write. You're the one writing. So, you know, the thinking is done by the soul. The soul thinks. But what's the part of the body that the soul uses to think? What's its tool? The brain. So he thinks about this for a minute and bursts out laughing. And I said, what's so funny? He says, well, well, I mean, obviously a piece of meat can't think. So the thinking obviously, is, your, your soul is thinking. And if it's so obvious that you have to have a soul, then obviously you can't be an atheist. Because like, how could you be an atheist and believe you have a soul? Like, this is, that's ridiculous. And then we went on to talk about something else. So what does that mean? What is the brain? It's a piece of meat. Okay. So which part of your body, so now the brain does all sorts of interesting things, but which specific part of your body is involved in the seeing? Eyes and their, right, and some aspect of the brain, but the eyes, right? Take out the eyes, not going to work very well. So he said the eyes. And I said, now, is it the eyes that see or is it the soul that sees? Because he remembered the previous conversation. He's like, well, it's the soul that sees, but it sees through the eyes. I'm like, very good. So then I asked him, which part of your body do you use for walking? The legs. Use your legs for walking. But is it the legs that walk or the soul that walks? Because if legs could walk, right, then, the, then a corpse could be walking. You know, that only happens in zombie movies. And which part of your body do you use for hearing? Ears. Which part of for tasting? Right? He starts going through this, right? So your soul does all these things, but it uses different parts of the body, right? And then I asked him, I said, well, how come you don't see through your nose and speak through your, speak through your heel and, and walk with your ears? And he looks at me and I says, like, well, that's ridiculous. Said, well, why not? He says, well, because, you know, the eye, it's like, it like made for seeing. Like, what about it? He's like, I don't know, there's something about the way the eye is that makes it able to see. Like, you can't, like, try putting, try seeing through your tongue. It doesn't work very well. So I said, so, so like, your, your soul's ability to do different things happen in different places in the body? And he says, yeah. So, so what does that tell you? And he thinks about this. Says, well, that means different parts of the body match different parts of the soul. Like, perfect. So the seeing part of the soul goes where? Hearing part of the soul? Moving yourself around part of the soul? Your legs? Moving other things around? Those are different, by the way, those are different things, right? Moving yourself from place to place is different than moving other things around. Okay, so moving others, hands, moving yourself, legs, okay? And we could go on and on. Making more of you, reproductive organs, right? Extracting nourishment, digestive organs, right? All things that the soul does, but does through different parts of the body, different so-called powers or faculties of the soul go into appropriate parts of the body. And let's say, God forbid, a person loses their eyes. Are they missing their ability to see? No. no. Like if, I, if you don't have a pen, do you lose your ability to write? So why can't you write? That's right. So the, if the soul is the one that does the seeing, but 
in order to see in this world, you need an eye and doesn't have the eye. So the soul's power to see doesn't disappear. If you don't have hands, do your, does your ability to change the world around you disappear? No. This is the famous question. If an expert piano player loses their hands, are they no longer an expert piano player? They don't have hands, so can they play the piano? No. So I think, or do we mean like practically? No, they're missing the hands to do it. But like something inside them of this, this knowledge, this awareness of what is what they have that. that that's, that's an aspect of the soul. Yes and then yes. So if in this world, You also need eyes to see. And if you don't have eyes, you'll be blind when you get to Olam Haba. I don't recommend it. It's a not pleasant. Okay, so we're always going to need some form of eyes. That's right. It really stinks to get to Olam Haba and not to have eyes and ears. It's like, can you imagine being in the most amazing place ever and not having the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the nose to smell? No. <laughs> whatever, whatever, the, whatever the mechanism is by which the soul can can experience Olam Abba, just like you need eyes to experience the physical world? You're not going to like the answer. Mitzvahs to give you the eyes, ears, and things, and guess what Avayers do? Get rid of them. So someone who dies, this is actually a problem. What if a person dies? What if a person dies, and they lived a wicked life, and the end of their life they do tshuva? So, on the one hand, on the one hand, shuva atones for all sins, and therefore they're undeserving of punishment. On the other hand, they don't have the eyes, ears, hands. They don't have the 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 corresponding um, body, if you will, to actually participate in the world to come. There's a there's a, a whole discussion of this in Kabbalah, and you have the reverse, by the way, which is you could have a person who lived a very righteous life, and at the end of their life they just decide to become a heretic. The story in the Gemara about that, which means they have the they have all the stuff to participate in the world to come, but they don't deserve it, so they're not allowed in. So there's actually two different things, which is your deservingness and your ability, your, the, the fact that you can practically do it, right? Somebody who's God forbid born blind, right? We don't think of them as undeserving of seeing. It's just on a technical level, they don't have the eyes, right? Um, so yeah, in the physical world you need physical eyes, in the spiritual world you need spiritual eyes, and if there's different levels of spiritual world, you can have different levels of spiritual eyes, or different mitzvahs and do different things, and that's discussed in Kabbalah. But that's not for today. But yes, yeah. Yes, and then yes. From this Yeah, there are some fundamental differences, which I mentioned when we spoke about spheres and the fact that the and we're going to see this in, in soon, um, but there's there's a, there's there's a greater degree of connection between the soul and the body than you with like a pen or a knife or a fork. Okay. But but in in some grand sense, yes, it is it is it is a very profound kind of a tool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but that gets into the whole issue of reincarnation, and I don't like talking about reincarnation, as we've discussed before, because it's very counterintuitive and usually creates more problems when you start talking about that than it solves. Um, but if you really want, you can find, uh, you know, Shara Gugulim of Arizo and read all about it and be more confused than you were before. Okay. Um, yes. 
you had said before that it, it's not a physical thing to, if someone dies without a body part, they'll still have it in the world of Yeah, yeah, physical body parts like and spiritual. Well, there is, there is, there are, so this. There's a corresponding, yes, there's, there's a corresponding element. So, not having teeth, physical teeth, has nothing to do with whether you have teeth in Alam Haba, but there is certain mitzvahs that provide, I mean, what do teeth do? They break things apart to make them digestible, right? Okay, so, um, if you're going to process knowledge, you need something that kind of functions like teeth, right? You, in fact, if you think about it on a mental level, what is your analytical ability? It functions a lot like, what does it do? It tears the and if you think of anything about it, you think about your teeth even more particularly, right? How many kinds of teeth do you have? A few. A few, right? You have teeth for cutting, teeth for grinding, things for drinking, and right, there's different methods of analysis, right? So there's a kind of parallel there. Yeah. And yeah, so if you're gonna be in some spiritual reality and have to process it, you're gonna have to have a method of breaking things down so your soul can internalize it, right? So I guess you have some kind of spiritual analog of teeth. And it would be kind of annoying to be toothless. But if you don't have teeth, then you'll have a harder time in that? You don't have spiritual teeth. Oh, spiritual. Yes. Is there anything, is there any things about organ donation that somehow connects to what you're saying? Not that I know of. I mean, I'm not an, I'm enough of an expert, but to my knowledge, all of the issues with organ donation tend to do with covered hames or... Um, I don't know if they live, like, after a certificate donation. Yeah. Like, is there any inherent value of a person I have I have never heard of such a thing being brought in a tshuva, and I don't recall seeing anything in Kabbalah. But I'm not enough of an expert to tell you it doesn't exist. Is it different? Yeah. No. Right. 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 Yeah. So, like, I mean, if you want to have a strong functioning right arm in Olam Haba, give tzedakah. That would be like, you know, if you want. Doesn't matter. If you wanna, if you wanna, if you wanna, if you wanna functioning left arm, don't indulge in things that you don't really need in life. If you wanna, if if you if if you want to really be able to, to, digest and to eat and really you know, think very deeply when you're learning Torah and don't just be superficial. Um, yeah, I can, like and the Kabbalah like it gets very technical like every little thing. Um, fine, so. Now, you asked about is it, is, is, is it like a, so each part of the soul goes into a different part of the body, okay? On the other hand, there are other things that don't really have a specific part of the body. So going back to my 11-year-old, I ask him, which part of the body do you experience pleasure with? I said, well, what do you mean? I said, like, well, when you see something, can that be enjoyable? He says, yeah. What about tasting? What about running? Like, like is, is there any part of the body that, 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 that you use specifically for enjoyment, the way like you use your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your legs to walk, or you could like tack on enjoyment with any of them. Like, I, what? It's not localized, right? And the same thing was with will, right? Like if I have a will to, I, I could have a will to run, I could have a will to think deeply, I can have a will to look at something, I could have a will to, to, to eat. Right? Will, enjoyment, delight, these kinds of things happen can happen anywhere. There's no, you don't have a specific part. And by the way, if someone tells you that um, they're doing a physical activity and they enjoy it more than they enjoy an intellectual activity, are they necessarily lying to you? 
No. There's no, nothing rule that says that a physical activity like running has to be less enjoyable than a mental activity. Right? It, 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 in a certain sense, enjoyment kind of is not really localized or doesn't really take into consideration what the thing is that you're enjoying or what the thing is that you are willing yourself to do. So if we were to break down our soul and we were to think about our soul has two kinds of abilities. We have abilities like seeing, hearing, thinking, tasting, moving ourselves around, which is called, which is called walking. Moving other things around, which is called movement. Just when you ever read it, it says, it says the power of movement, power of walking, that's the difference. Um, to extract nourishment, to procreate. And those things, those different abilities of the soul, they're the kinds of abilities that say, I can only be present if I have the right kind of receptacle, the right kind of vessel, the right kind of tool. Seeing won't go into the ear, taste won't go into the heel. But then there are other ones that say, I don't really care what it is. Enjoyment, will, delight, that, that's like, it's an eye, I don't care. I can experience enjoyment in, in, in my eyes. I can, I can use my eyes as a method of expressing my willpower. I can use a staring contest with someone. Will, delight, and enjoyment, they don't take into account the differences between the different parts of the body. They don't care about those differences. And you could experience intense pleasure or exercise an intense amount of will in one part of the body, another part of the body. There, there's no rules to that. Yeah. No. Because it's really not that conceptually interesting. Like, there are things that are very, people think are interesting because they're exotic, but like, like, let me give you a simple example. Like, uh, we all know that when you have certain sense perceptions that can trigger memories, okay? Mm -hmm. And that basic idea is that certain things can be associated, yeah? So what's synesthesia? Really strong associations usually with, between colors and other more thing, other more regular everyday things like letters and numbers is a common example. So yeah, it's just like a, it's like it's it's nothing. I mean, it's not, conceptually it's a, it's it, it's like a it's, it's having your wires crossed. It's not like I mean, it's, it, medically it's interesting, but conceptually. It's not like okay, so something something that something that isn't usually wired together, and this person's mind got wired together, and so which is why if you ask people, it's like that they see colors as numbers and numbers as colors. They have both experienced simultaneously. Yeah. The, the proof to this is, is there's not enough colors <laughs> to go to all the numbers. Someone once argued with these. I said, so what happens? Like red is blue, red is one, and green is two. And like what happens when you run out of colors? Like there's no more numbers in that person's mind. I mean, they can still do math, right? And there's infinite numbers. There's, you know, in English, there's 26 letters, and he was 22. Like, it's associations. Now, most regular people, like smells and memories, get, are very strongly associated. That's like a, you know, regular thing that happens in people's brains. And very rarely, colors and numbers get associated. Okay, but like, there's nothing. There is something discussed about having your senses crossed, which is mean you experience in a visual way things that you should only be able to experience with sound or vice versa. That's discussed, but that's like a very different thing altogether. Well, I can, I can only, this is because we don't experience life that way, but, but one of the qualities of seeing as opposed to hearing is that you have a sense of what it is. When you hear something, you have no sense of what it is. You have to do a lot of inferring from context. So when this, 
is in front of you and you see it, like, oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's this object, like that. It's a book, right? It's very obvious, right? But if a person is, God forbid, blind, and I hold this in front of them, like, how do they know what it is? And if I, well, they, okay, well, that tells me some stuff about it, but then they have to refer, like, refer in context. Well, what kinds of things can make that sound? Um, so, now, there's a lot of information about the world that we only get through sound. There's information we get that we experience visually, and there's an idea in Kabbalah that you could, that could get crossed. The kind of stuff about the world that you experience visually, meaning you have a direct sense of this is what this is, gets put on other stuff, and that's, that's miraculous. That's not normal. Like, just to give you a very simple example, I can see your face. But I have to I have to decipher from the sounds you're making of what you're really what you're really trying to convey to me. But imagine I could see what you want to convey, but I would have to decipher that you have a body. But there's like it's a different. That's not something that happens, like except at like Harsina or something, mm-hmm. like certain levels of prophecy. It's not normal. Okay, so so then I ask my 11 year old because it says in Basilagani just but the math of the Basilogani thing, it says that when we overcome evil or transform evil into good, that it, can, it draws down this soviv, this, this surrounding level. So I said, what does that mean? So he thinks about it, he says, it means that when we do a mitzvah, overcoming evil, it makes Hashem very, very, very happy. Hashem feels very, a lot of pleasure. Because remember, pleasure is what kind of a soul power? Is it a power that happens in one particular place? No. So there's aspects of Hashem's relationship which are more like seeing, hearing, tasting, walking, thinking. And there's aspects of His relationship which are more like pleasure, will, delight, desire. And the, di- and the ones that are pleasure, will, delight, and desire, they don't take the other thing into account. So make this practical. If you look at a rock and you look at yourself, which one does Hashem have more pleasure in? How do you know? And how do you know that's more meaningful to Hashem? What? He also put the rock here. I'm not asking you about your, your godly soul thing and being. I'm just asking you as, as a human being. You look at a human being, you look at a rock. Which one does Hashem drive more pleasure from? How do you know? And why does that necessarily mean he has more pleasure from, from that? Because he gave the rock its rockness. He gave the rock the ability to be a rock. Like, I mean, he clearly desired the rock. And I don't want to ask about Torah. I'm asking about human beings as human beings. Leave the Torah, leave, leave Torah mitzvahs out of it. Just as a human being. Why does that mean that Hashem has more pleasure and that it desires that more? It doesn't. And so what? Let me ask you a question, yeah? I'm an intellectual. I think we all realize that. Okay, so someone tells me they really like knitting. I know someone, they love knitting. Knitting is their thing. I think knitting is the most boring activity in the world. Like, why would you possibly have any pleasure whatsoever from knitting? I have a very close relative. They love knitting. I don't get it. Like, why would you, like, you spend time and money to, like, I don't get it. Now, is it right of me to say because I don't see anything, I don't see any pleasure, any meaning 
any delight whatsoever in manipulating small pieces of yarn with your fingertips and I don't know whatever however you do it that, that therefore it, it's not a person can't have that experience does that make sense no, no. if someone tells me they're doing algebra with their heel right and they ingest nutrients with their ears okay there's something wrong with them that's not true you can't do algebra with your heel if you want to do algebra use your brain you want to ingest nutrients you use your digestive tract right but if you want to enjoy, delight, take pleasure, exert your will, who am I to tell you which part of your body you can do that with? It can happen anywhere. You think with your brain. Your brain doesn't the thing do not thinking. Okay. So who am I to tell God? I mean, that He can't have to derive tremendous pleasure and meaning from a rock. Like for instance, here's a cup. Yeah, a cup. And I'm now going to place the cup here. How much pleasure did Hashem have from that cup being there? Unknown. It's unknown. Like, how would I know? I mean, unless he comes and tells me, why should I make any assumptions? In fact, maybe he has as much pleasure from that as the, the birth of my most recent son. How would I know? I'm not God. Because pleasure, will, desire, these types, of, these types of ways of relating, they don't take the other into account. And therefore, it, 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 how he relates to the, how much pleasure and how much delight and how much important the cup is, is determined not by the cup, but by him. But now, this is true. If Hashem wants to express the, his morality, right? Hashem is a moral being. We'll just use that as an example. Hashem is a moral being. If he wants to express his moral aspect, can he do it with the cup? No, because does a cup have anything with it which allows it to express morality? I mean, cups can hold coffee, they can sit there, but do they have a moral dimension, something that can use? If Hashem wants to express his morality, what kind of beings are he going to have to use? Humans. Maybe angels, depending on what your conception of angels are, but definitely not cups. Right? If, you want, if your soul wants to see, it's going to have to use the eyes. Yeah. Is the sunset beautiful? Yeah? I mean, can we all agree that, uh, you know, under the right, you know, if everything, a sunset is beautiful. Now, is this coffee cup beautiful in the same way or on the same scale as the sunset? No. Okay. So if Hashem wants to express how beautiful he is in the world, can he use this cup the same way he can use the sunset? No. If he wants to express that level of profound beauty, he's going to have to do something like with the sunset, right? He can't use the cup. What if Hashem wants to convey his sense of grandeur, how grand he is? What would be a good thing in our physical universe that Hashem used to convey to us a sense of how grand he really is? Mountain peaks, yeah. Deep valleys. A sunset. The nighttime sky when there's... right. But big, grand natural things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... The thing is like this. There are things about Hashem, there are things about Hashem that if he's going to express them in the reality, there has to be an aspect of reality that actually matches it. And what that means is then you can experience that quality of Hashem in the world. Which, by the way, leads to a very important conclusion. Okay? I want you now to list 10 good qualities in the world. I will start, I will list two and then you have to list 10 more, okay? Morality, good qualities, things of value. What? 
we're, we're going to do this out loud. So I want, okay? I mean, someone can write them down, make sure we don't repeat it. The first one is morality, and the second is beauty. I want 10 more. Love. Love. Integrity. Integrity. Loyalty. Kindness. 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 Justice. Justice. Friendship. I, avoiding friendship, because I think friendship encompasses some of the other ones. Wisdom. Wisdom. Good. Trust. Honesty. Honesty. Well, I would say honesty is relative to others and integrity is relative to yourself. But if you, but if you want to not count this, we can count another three instead of another two. I'll go with it. Knowledge. Knowledge. Joy. Faith. And joy. That's 11. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Do these things... <laughs> exist in different parts of the world? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now let's think about it. Can rocks be wise? Okay. Um, can a self-centered person um, who only cares about themselves um, be loving? In the way we think of love as a positive quality. I must have Right. So we all understand that even though these qu- positive qualities exist, they, you know, they're, they're kind of constraints. Like, if you want this positive quality, like, you have to be in a certain way. Right. Now, so these qualities exist to different degrees in different aspects of reality, on different levels of reality, yeah? Okay. Now here's an interesting question. All of those qualities, the joy, the beauty, the integrity, the honesty that we see in the world, whose is it? It's Hashem's, right? Going back to what I said about who, what in your, in your, what's seeing, your soul or your body? What's thinking? What's walking, really? The soul. So when somebody, when I see somebody as kind, the kindness is really not their kindness, it's really. So why am I seeing it in them? Because, right, because they're the proper medium to express kindness. Now, Hashem's full kindness or a limited amount of his kindness? And that kindness gets, gets altered because it can only be revealed in the way that particular thing can reveal it. Okay? Let me give you an example. A fire is hot, yeah? Now, if you put materials next to a fire which is hot, the, the materials themselves become hot, right? The heat of, but it's not their heat, it's the heat of the fire, right? So if I look at a boiling pot of water, the heat in the water is not really the water's heat, it's the fire's heat. And if I look at the heat at the melting, in melting wax, it's not the heat of the wax, it's really the heat of the fire. Right? The way you see this is you remove it and what happens? It's no longer hot, the heat fades. Yes? That's they true. Got burned by the heat of the water. They were saying I got burned by the hot water. Right? So in that sense, but is but is the heat this is exactly the point I want to get at. Yeah. This is exactly the point I want to get at. The heat is not the water's heat. Because if it was the water's heat, it would be intrinsic to the water, and that's not the case, right? You move the fi- water from the fire and what happens? It Okay. But but the heat becomes part of the water. This is a very important idea. It's not like, okay, it's not like a window. In a window, the light comes through the window. Does the light become part of the window? No. What's happening with the heat of the fires is becoming part of the water. Okay? Now, if the connection is lost, then the heat starts to fade. Okay? 
So there's, there's two elements here. On the one hand, the fire, the heat is really, the fire is heat, but it is actually becoming imbued and embedded within the water and part of the water, which leads to an important thing. The way the heat is manifest in the water is entirely different than the way it's manifest in the, the wax and it's different than the way it's manifest in clay. In water, the heat is manifest in boiling, in wax and melting, and in clay, in hardening. Just let me finish. So if I say, oh, this kindness in this person is really not their kindness, it's Hashem's kindness. The beauty in this sunset is not the sunset's beauty, it's Hashem's beauty. That's true, but it's not like those things are windows into Hashem's beauty. What's really happening is Hashem's beauty is being embedded into those things. They can contain it and express it in some sense, but they're also only able to express it in a certain way and they're modifying, so it actually becomes part of those things. This is why the expression of filling, it actually becomes part of it. Yeah. And the way, by the way, this goes back to your question about the soul and the body. The soul is not using the eyes and the, 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 the tongue and the legs the way you use a fork and a knife because you don't use those things by becoming part of them. But you do become part of your body. In as much as you're alive, your soul isn't using the eyes like sending out a scout to go tell it information. You're actually present within the eyes. You experience yourself within it. And so you see in accordance with the way the eye works. And if something happens to your eye, that's the way you see. Yeah. So my, I'm wondering why you're drawing this distinction between the heat, like it's the fire's heat versus the heat is part of the water, and you said intrinsic, but like why does possession have to do with being intrinsic? As in, this is my sweatshirt, but I just is just fine without it. Because, because, because words, words gain their meaning in context. When we're talking about examining something, right? If I look, if I see a pot of water that's boiling, yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm interested not in the boiling of the water, but in the heat. I have to ask a question, okay? Okay, this heat is this heat um, an attribute of the water? Is it expressing me? Is it telling me something about the water? Or is this heat actually because something else is influencing the water? And if so, what is influencing water? So just a very interesting thing. Um, in Israel, in many Middle Eastern countries, one of the ways we heat water is we use what's called a dud shemesh, which is a solar heater. How does a solar heater work? How does it work? Anyone know? And what does the sun do? It hits... No, what the, what, what, what it, the, the sun... You put the water through this black tubing, and the tubes are hot because black tubing does what? It it absorbs a lot of the of the heat from the sun. Okay. Now, so if I now now if I want to, if I my interest is in my interest is not in having hot water, but in the heat itself. Say, so, well, the heat of this water is not because of the water. The heat of this water is only because the water goes through the pipes, these, these black pipes. So really, I have to understand what, I have to understand the heat in the water as the effect of, or the transferring of the heat of the black pipe to the water. And I think, well, wait a minute, the black pipes aren't really hot, that's really just the heat of the sun, right? Okay, now, I could have an entirely different context in which I'm talking about this, in which case I would use the same words that mean something totally differently. For instance, in the law, when you're talking about possession, you're talking about things like ownership and right of use. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, so if I want to understand heat and heat sources and what makes one heat source more powerful than another heat source, wait a minute, yeah? My oven is pretty hot, but the sun is hotter. 
Because if I put my oven as far away from those hot water pipes as the sun is, would those hot water pipes get hot? But if I put the sun that far away, does it still heat up the black pipes? So that tells me something about the power of the sun's heat. And how, how it has that level of intensity. Right? So because the context here is trying to understand the greatness of God, right? So say, okay, there's all these amazing things in the world, like, say, beauty and integrity and, and, and morality and love. Okay. And it's true. These are properties of the world. They're in the world. They're part of the world. That's true. But are they really the world's properties or are they actually being imbued into the world, shared with the world? Right? In other words, when, when, should we really attribute them to being features of the world? Or are they actually expressing features of God? This goes back to this idea that I had a problem with my son, misattributing thinking to the brain. The brain is a, is a piece of meat. Thought is a profound subjective experience. You don't attribute profound subjective experience to a piece of meat. But it's taking place within the meat, and it's constrained by that meat, and when that, something happens to the meat, like you get hit on the head, it really affects how you think. And the way the beauty of God is manifest in a sunset is going to be different because a sunset can only manifest beauty in a particular kind of way and not in other kinds of ways. And therefore, the way Hashem wants to express these different qualities of himself in the world, he has to take the world into account. I can't express my morality in a rock and I can't express my grandeur in a piece of sand and I can't express my, 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 my beauty in something that's hideous. And because those things are multi-dimensional, right? It's not just that his beauty takes on different forms. There's the beauty, you know, we, 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 there's the beauty of like a sunset or, or a vista, but there's also like the beauty in a story, in an event, right? It's a, different, it's a beauty in a totally different dimension. And that aspect of Hashem's beauty can't be put into a sunset. And so this idea that Hashem fills the world is that every good quality in the world, every Everything that's life-affirming in the world is really not an aspect of the world. It's really an aspect of Hashem, but it's manifest in the appropriate places in the world. And different worlds and different levels of worlds can manifest different, different good things about Hashem to different degrees. Which means everything you like, by the way, is really... What follows from this? Everything you like about the world is really... Hashem. It's also the same thing. Give me an example. What do you like that's sinful? Bacon. Bacon. Why do you like bacon? Do you like have this like ideological commitment that makes you feel good about eating dead pigs? No. No. Okay. So then, what is it about bacon that you like? The taste. Yeah. Tastes good. Okay. So that quality of tasting good, right? That actually it says very explicitly in Kabbalah and in Chassidus that actually comes from God's presence in the pork. Hundred percent. If Hashem was not filling the pork, he wasn't present in the pork, then it wouldn't taste good. The, 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 the positiveness, the life-affirmingness, the pleasure, the whatever, whatever words you want to use, the, the element of anything that makes it valued in any way, shape, or form is not an aspect of itself, it's an aspect of Hashem's presence within it. The, 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 the good taste of the pork is actually the good taste of God. It's just going back to the boiling water, right? When you touch the boiling water, what's your instinct to say? That it's the heat of the fire that burned me or the heat of the water that burned me? Right, but if you think about it, is that really 
it, true that heat is present in the water and has become part of the water, but really not the water's heat. Right? It's really the fire's heat. Yeah. What about bad things in the water? What about bad things? Give me an example of a bad thing. Treachery. So what we would say is like this. The things which are bad are just devoid of God's presence. Now, now, but this is an important. Well, I'll say, but here's the thing: Is there anything that's absolutely bad in every single level? There's no dimension of positive, life-affirming goodness to it in any way. Well, this is an issue. This is an issue, and this is something the Rambam says in his guide for the perplexed, and is a very important point that Chassidus um, harps on, which is that when you really ponder this and reflect on what you realize is all of the things which are good are all the things which all the things which, ex- which 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 are which are bad either one of two things they're not entirely bad there's an element of good or they're not really existences they're not really things that they're an absence of what you would like like i mean not i'm not going to dissect murder in its entirety but we'll just ask dissect two aspects of murder one is the death of the person well the death of the person is not a thing the death of the person is what the absent thing like i would have liked their life to continue longer and it didn't so that's not a thing, that's an absence. And then you say the murderer, right? Well, I would have liked the murderer to have more morality and what they were lacking was. So the victim is lacking in more, more life and the, and the perpetrator is lacking in more morality. So these are not things which are evil, these are less of God's life-affirming properties than I would have preferred. Is there anything more than this? No. Is there an absence of good, bad? But, it, but it's not a thing. So like everything that everything that is, it everything that is has a goodness to it. That goodness is God's goodness, but it's present and imbued in that thing. That's what that's what that's what we mean when we say that God fills the world. So when you're like watching a movie, whatever you like in the movie is actually what God. Is it the totality of God? No. It's the way God can be revealed in the movie. Now, is the movie the best receptacle to, to reveal God's great qualities? Let's use, let's, use, let's use a physical analogy for a second. If someone wants to reveal how wise they are, right? What would be a good way they could do it? Teaching, writing a book. What would be a really bad way to try and express how wise you are? What? Running. Like running, like just the physical act of running doesn't really do a great job expressing wisdom. If you put it in a very specific context, then maybe, but like just the pure act of running in and of itself. I mean, for that matter, I mean, um, zebras, they can run. They're not very wise. So there you go. Running is not in and of itself a great expression of wisdom. If God wants to express something of himself, he needs the world to have the right qualities that facilitate that expression. This way of understanding Hashem's relationship with the world and therefore realizing what make, that everything that makes the world great is really his greatness, this is called him filling the worlds. Yeah? Um, is it, it feels very um, debasing mm-hmm. towards the God? Because when I think of all the things in the, like, in the whole range of the world that people enjoy, like plenty of people find enjoyment in brothels. Mm-hmm. So what they're, it's like them finding God, but like, are they, is their enjoyment of Whatever's going on there, putting God there, or is God already there? What is God, God is already there. What is God doing there? Like, that's, just That's a very good question. <laughs> that's, you've heard of this concept of the, the, the exile of the Shrina? 
Yeah. Now it's become a little more concrete. <laughs> like, why is he, like, what is he doing there? What is he trying to express? Like, if you imagine, like, somebody, like, but, but look at this, right? There's a guy who has free will, self-volition, right? He lives his life, and he goes, and he hangs out, and he's like, what are you doing there? Like, what do you, how, what of yourself do you see that you are affirming and validating and, 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 and expressing out into reality by that? And now the answer to that is there's usually a complicated story, right? When someone's nice to somebody, it's pretty straightforward. But when somebody's cruel to somebody, like there's a, always an interesting backstory there. Like what happened? How do you go from the inherent goodness of being a human being to being cruel to somebody? There's an interesting, convoluted story of what what happened there. If it, you know, if God is if God is being present in such lowly and debased things, like why would He do that? That is a very good question. But this is you ever heard the idea of elevating the sparks? So what are these sparks? That's right. So like now, so like, why is he there? That's a good question. Do people address that question? So There's more to married. Tanya. So somebody goes to the brothel and then he gets married to one of those women. They're elevating that spark. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, by the way. There's all sorts of ways to elevate things, right? Not necessarily as the way to elevate something. Like, for instance, what is the proper way to elevate the, the pork? Let's use pork as the example. Not eat it. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Not eating it is impressive. Do you know why it's impressive? Because it tastes good. Well, now, here's the thing. I grew up keeping kosher, so I think it smells awful. But that's just because I didn't grow up eating it. But... Um, if, if lots of people are eating something, that usually means that it, it does taste good. Um, and pe- everybody that I've spoken to that, that did grow up eating pork says that it actually tastes good. And you know, I think shellfish are also disgusting, but that's because I didn't grow up eating them. And I'm not an adventurous person when it comes to you know, what I eat. So I have no desire to eat stuff I didn't grow up eating. But all the people that, that either are adventurous or they grew up eating it, like there's nothing, there, there, there's no, you didn't do anything, like, like you didn't do a mitzvah by not eating dirt. You didn't do anything by not eating dirt because, like, what would compel you to eat dirt to begin with? <laughs> okay, a healthy person. But if a person, but if a person doesn't eat pork, well, that's that's something because, like, pork apparently tastes good and it smells good. So there has to be some goodness in the pork that you're rejecting to say that you actually did something. So there's a mitzvah not to eat pork. That can only be if there's something appealing to the pork. That means God has to put some of His appealingness into the pork. So if pork doesn't appeal to you, then it's not a mitzvah that you're not. That's right. You don't, get a mit po- you don't get mitzvah points for not eating pork if you don't want to eat pork. It's like you don't get mitzvah points for not murdering people right now. I mean, unless there's some weird stuff going on with you, in which case, um, just go in that room because I'm scared. Yes? I have two questions. The first is, can we say that spirit are like the medium type and within each of those spirit, there's a set category of defined medi- other mediums depending on what the thing is that God wants to deliver, be it like anger or beauty. Yes. And then, can we say that Sobed is godliness before it goes through the Sphira, and Male, Mamale is once it's through? You could say that. It's not as simple, but that's, that's on, a, on a very rudimentary level correct. It's more complicated. But on a very basic level, that, that's correct. Yeah. So you were saying how, like, our things like kindness are fueled by our connection with Hashem and His kindness. No, no, not fueled. They are. It's they His are. kindness. So what if somebody distances themselves from Hashem, like an atheist? Would they be inherently less 
Well, let's let's reverse the, the, the thought process. Is it possible for a person to distance himself from Hashem and retain any any of these good qualities? Yes. No. That's true. But you're a multifaceted being, right? So just because you're distant from Hashem in your belief system doesn't mean you're distant from Hashem in your human nature, does it? So you can never actually leave that Well, I mean, yeah, if you totally lost the connection with Hashem at all, what good qualities would you have left? None. None. And if you didn't have any good qualities, would there be anything left of you? Because, like, everything has a, every, like, it goes back to, anything that exists has something good quality about it. So what do you mean if you don't cease to exist? You would literally see something like, like even, even take just even the most basic. This is my favorite, yeah? This stability. No one ever mentions this because they take it for granted. Stability, right? You ever been in an earthquake? Yes. Mm-hmm. How does that feel if you've been in an earthquake? Okay. I don't really know what's going on. Right. You, like, you're, like, like the most stable thing in our lives is the ground we walk on all of a sudden. Like literally, it's the most stable thing. Right, that like we build everything, assuming that you know, the ground is going to support us and support the things. And, okay, well, right <laughs> now, the stability of the ground is the ground stability or God's stability. Oh. Now, you want to make this personal? How would you feel about sitting in a chair, and the chair just kind of collapsed under you? It'd be funny. What? Well, no, the chair could just could not be a stable chair. It could be a functioning chair, right? Right? But that, that would not, that, that would, like, right, but, 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 you know, it's, like, very disconcerting, right? You, have you ever sat down and think the chair's going to hold you and it doesn't? Yeah, when I was five, this chair, like, And it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's, like, <gasps> like, what just happened? It's, like, I would say it's, like, having the rug put out from under you, but it's worse. But here's the thing. That supportiveness of the, of the, physicality of the chair is actually the supportiveness of now he can put that supportiveness in a, in a firm piece of plastic but he can't put that supportiveness in air because try sitting on some air it doesn't work very well so he can he fills the plastic with his supportiveness he fills his transparency with the he fills the air with his transparency so the idea that an atheist is removed from God is in, in this way of thinking is utterly ridiculous in fact, even his atheism. What's his atheism? What's atheism? It's a disbelief. It's, 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 it's that you have the ability to affirm or deny certain propositions, right? That you're able to, you're able to engage in, in conceptual thinking, right? That, that conceptual thinking ability, who's, who's a, who's, who is that? Who really, who's is that? Is that, is that, is Hashem? Hashem thinks conceptually. And it's Hashem's conceptual thinking that's taking place in the atheist. And that's very interesting. Like, why is Hashem imbuing his conceptual thinking into the act of denying his own existence? You know, that's an interesting, why would he do that? I don't know, but that's, that's very interesting. I once heard a rabbi give a lecture. He says um, that, and his point was that the, 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 the act of denying God is the most affirming thing you could do to God because what are you doing when you're denying God? You are saying... Beyond free will, I can think. Like thought is real, right? But thought is a the thought in the world is really God's. 
So Mamale Kalam, that God fills the world, means everything of the world that is affirmative, that is of value, that is of meaning, that is positive, is really, those are not qualities of the world, those are qualities of Him, but they're being imbued into the world. Not, not that the world is just a transparent window that lets them go, they're imbued in the world, and so they appear in the world the way the world can handle them. Right? A colorblind person is co- sees in a colorblind way because there's an issue going on with the eyes or the... You know, the if a person, if a person is a shallow person, how much of God's kindness can be present in them? If a person is a broad person and a deeper person, right? Just like if somebody, right? Just like if somebody's eyes are are are, are distorted, like not so much vision can happen in them. But there's no such thing as being removed from God, and even the worst things, whatever whatever about those things is good, positive, valuable, etc. Those things are not; those are features of God. Now, the the best way of thinking about this again is like the way the heat is present in the water. The water is not just transparently letting the heat pass by. The heat manifests in a water-like way through boiling, and in wax in a wax-like way through melting, and in a clay-like way by hardening. And so, when God's beauty goes into the sunset, it has this majestic grandeur of beauty, right? And when you like read a chicken soup from the soul story, the beauty is an entirely different kind of beauty because. It has this kind of touching element of beauty to it. But it's all him. Now, by the way, this idea, have you ever heard that Chassidus is controversial? This is one of the reasons why Chassidus is controversial. Because Chassidus would go around saying, yeah, yeah, everything I experience is really God. Everything. Whatever I experience, the hardness of the chair that keeps me up, it's the God's supportiveness. The beauty in my neighbor's wife that I'm attracted to, right? Because go around saying this. And the misdagdim were like, what are you talking about? Now, this, we have to be delicate with these things. Like, just because it's God doesn't mean that God wants you to relate to it in a certain way. Right? This is very important. Right? Just because something, right? Not, just because God makes the pork taste good doesn't mean he wants you to eat it. Right? This was the part that got lost in translation between the Chassidim and the Misnagdim. They, they were not saying you should go eat the pork. But it's Hashem is imbuing His own, for lack of words, deliciousness into the pork to make the not eating the pork an actual thing you did. You really, it really is delicious. And if it's really delicious, it has, like, the reality of deliciousness is God. God is tasty. By the way, that's a pasuk. That's, that's a pasuk. That's a verse. Taimu uru'u ki Hashem. Taste and see that God is good. No, it's first comes the mitzvah. That's why he says Hashem looks into and creates the world. It's like, first he has a mitzvah. He's like, well, well, not eating pork doesn't mean anything if pork is just like dirt. So I better put something in the pork that makes it tasty. Well, I'm tasty, so I'll put some of my tastiness in the pork. <laughs> no, really. But this is what this means, that every good quality, which by the way means whatever is great in your life, whatever is great, whatever is amazing in your conception of the world, to, 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 to do enough is brightness to start to shift your way of conceiving reality that what you're experiencing as great is not the greatness of the world, it's not the greatness of your parents, it's not the greatness of your friends, not the greatness of your teacher, not the greatness of the novel or the movie, it's really the greatness of. The greatness of the world is not the greatness of the world, it's the greatness of Hashem. That's this idea that Hashem fills the world. But what about when you, when you experience something to you that seems completely evil? From your perspective then you would say, this is an aspect where I don't see what's great about it. 
But if there was nothing great about it, it's like, it's like, I'll just give you an example, right? Somebody who doesn't speak English and comes to a place where everybody is giving amazing classes in English gets very frustrated because they don't see what the point is, right? But, but that's not because there's nothing there. That's because they're not able to appreciate it, right? Doesn't God find some things, like, abhorrent? And, like, how is... Yes. So how... What does he find abhorrent? Give me an example of what he finds abhorrent. Shellfish, okay, yeah. eating shellfish. Great. Okay, but you know why? But 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 here's the thing. If it if it's abhorrent to eat shellfish, then it means that eating shellfish has to actually be something. That, but I'm saying the actual act of eating it. Yeah. What what you're starting to realize by the, this when you really take this one of the aspects this leads to this leads to a level of richness and complexity in God's relationship with things. Right. It's like it's like imagine like somebody comes and says, if my parents loved me, they would always be nice to me. Like if someone really believes that, what can we conclude? about their mental state. Not there. They're two years old, right. They're not sophisticated in their thinking because it's not true, right? That's exactly the point. There's mul- that, that if every good thing is the greatness of Hashem and yet Hashem finds certain things abhorrent, like how do you imbue yourself into something that you find distasteful? There has to be some sort of larger picture and, and there's a, comp- a complexity of relationship there. Yeah? Hashem, Hashem really finds eating shellfish abhorrent and he wants the not eating shellfish to really be like, you didn't eat the shellfish. But if you kind of not eat shellfish, then that means you have to actually reject. Well, if you're rejecting, there has to be something you have to reject. And the only, thing that, the only thing that gives anything its goodness, its quality, its appeal is God. So God has to put himself in the shellfish if he's going to make, if, if rejecting the shellfish is going to be something. By the way, if you want an example of this, this is why writing a novel is extremely difficult. Because when you write a novel, you have to have an antagonist, yeah? How much do you have to invest in your antagonist? Equal to or less than your protagonist? Equal to. But here's the thing. There's, which one do you identify with? Which one do you want to win in the end? Well, then, then you've got this whole anti-hero thing. But like, there is a protagonist. The protagonist is, you. this is the one you identify with. This is the one you want like, us to, to, the reader to, to, to see their triumphs as triumphs and their failures as failures. But you need an antagonist. The thing is, like, you know, if, if your hero just, whatever the issues are they deal with, just work themselves out automatically because everything is just set up for them to do so, it's not a very engaging novel. Yeah, you have to invest in what you despise. That, that's what follows from this. Yes. Including those, including, including atheism. Yeah. It's Hashem. Who, who, it's Hashem's will power and it's Hashem's creativity and Hashem's conceptual thinking ability that is, in, that is what's manifest in the atheist. Why he would do that is an interesting question. Yeah? Why would Hashem deny certain people access to that? And for example, I as a child, not knowing that food was a thing, hated shellfish. Anytime I went to a restaurant with shellfish, wouldn't eat it. So I've never in my life had this opportunity to like find shellfish Right. That's exactly what that means. Why? This yeah. is a very simple reason. So that you don't have your own individual Judaism. One of the things that God likes is that we all do this together. So if you want to really participate in the midst of not eating shellfish, you're going to have to really have your Judaism incorporate people who like to eat shellfish. 
And that forces all the Jewish people to function as a unity and not have each one has their own little individual Judaism. Yeah, and there's also why, by the way, there's another view, which is why Belcher was not as great as a tzaddik. People don't know that. The Gemara brings two opinions. Yeah, there's two aspects to that, which is why they need each other. One of the things that Shem likes is when we all get along. And if we're going to get along, we each have to have ways in which we are superior and inferior to others. If Hashem wanted that, then we'll just be one generic person who do all the stuff by themselves. Anyway, that's filling the world. Tomorrow we'll do what it means that Hashem encompasses the world. Just remember, the taste of your coffee that you find so appealing, that's God.